In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In his book, The Great Code, The Bible and Literature, distinguished scholar and critic Northrop Fry writes, and I quote, I think we can see in most Greek literature before Plato, more especially in Homer, in the pre-biblical cultures of the Near East, and in much of the Old Testament itself, a conception of language that is poetic and hieroglyphic, not in the sense of sign writing, but in the sense of using words as particular kinds of signs. In this period, there is relatively little emphasis on a clear separation of subject and object. The emphasis falls rather on the feeling that subject and object are linked by a common power or energy. Let me say it again. The emphasis falls rather on the feeling that subject and object are linked by a common power or energy. Words in such contexts are words of power or dynamic forces." End quote. Words of power. The phrase has gripped me in the last few days as I have sought to come to grips with the fact that although we think of power very much as something the Spirit does and the Holy Spirit becomes more and more, the focus of these texts as we march toward Pentecost and the Spirit works in intoxicating worship and ecstatic utterances and supernatural healings and other experiences, what it is the Holy Spirit does is essentially linguistic speech acts, words in which subject and object, speaker and hearer, words spoken and words understood are linked by shared power as Fry says. Now, there are no Old Testament texts as such in the texts we read as Pentecost approaches, but texts such as those of today are still susceptible to that archaic power of language and what texts they are. Jesus promising the Spirit and then the disciples experiencing that same Spirit descend in power as they share their words with Lydia who opens her heart and her home and thus founds the European church. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, says Jesus to the disciples as he prepares them for his ultimate departure. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit, the Parakletos, the one who mediates, providing encouragement, consolation, and even the words the disciples will speak when they are tortured and beaten and afraid, will aid their memory and augment the things they never noted even as the Master spoke them. Rather than blustering on in our own strength, as one tends to do when one gets flustered, the Spirit yearns, groans, as in Roman 8, for us to open up the depths of our anxiety, weakness, and despair to his assistance. And he is always more ready to help than we to ask. Prayer is the Spirit's medium of communication, linking heaven and earth, the imminent and the transcendent, body and soul, as long as we ask earnestly and with propriety, pleading, as parokaleo, the verb form, says, pleading. 
And we fail one another badly when we forget to pray, forget what the Spirit can do to put things unequivocally right with God and right between human beings. For words of God's power allow no human obfuscation, no subterfuge, no subtle twists and turns of meaning. Look at what happens then when the disciples encounter these Macedonian women at the side of the river. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Tuatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Words of power indeed. And unlike their counterparts in Athens, Corinth, and Sparta, women played a very significant part indeed in Macedonian society from the Hellenistic era on. And in paralleling, paralleling the account in Acts 16, 12, 15 of these women, Lydia and her household, with the one that follows the men in prison and the conversion of the jailer and his household, Luke stresses the equality of women and men in God's plan of salvation and their equal importance to the new community, the nascent church. Luke shows that the seeds of the gospel can take root anywhere. Prisons, citadels, and houses alike provide the meeting places which are essential for the nurturing of new followers of the way. But Lydia, this Gentile with her women, does what Jewish women of her time could never do. As Ben Witherington remarks, the women, that women could constitute the embryonic church, that women could constitute the embryonic church, but not the embryonic synagogue reveals the difference in the status of women, the two faiths at that time. Assuming the posture of a Jewish rabbi then, Paul and his companions sit down and teach the women. The spirit intervenes in power and awakens in their hearts and minds the sense and substance of the words the men are sharing. No Jewish context is required for the gospel message to be heard with power according to God's intention. Acts gives us a pretty good idea of the words that Paul used of what constituting preaching in the apostolic era. And its simplicity shocks us. It has nothing to do with modern preaching at all. Unadorned by rhetorical flourishes, a simple account of the plan of salvation is all the apostles give us when they preach, as lived out in Christ crucified and risen in glory. Just the story, every word given by the Holy Spirit, every word heard in the Spirit's power. Listen to this. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. But here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. That's Acts 5. We can hear it more or less the same in another half a dozen places in Acts. 
and in Galatians, Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, and Romans. That's preaching as the Bible defines it. Just tell the story, just the power of the narrative. Bare bones, what's germane and germinal. But the Spirit drives those simple words home, either to Jew or Gentile alike, with or without the cradle of an Old Testament context. He drives those words home, either to convince or to convict. No rhetorical flourishes, no winning arguments, no preaching to convert, no sawdust trail, except the one that leads later to the Colosseum. Yet these stories also take us to the upper room. That day when the Spirit does come down and tongues of fire mark out those in whom that Spirit dwells. Those who will be given the power to preach in tongues not their own and reach the people groups of all the world, gathering those scattered by the fall of the Tower of Babel, united now despite their differences. Words of power, making community again from those divided by nature and culture letting them hear what God intended when he gave his word, responding not just to some transfer of information, but to the transformation that informs them all anew, giving a new shared vision of what together they might do, and giving them the desire to do it, and giving them the love and grace to work together, the means to listen hard to one another and to speak softly. Language takes its turns, as we know, and subject and object, thought and feeling, inner and outer, are rent asunder as people in the centuries to come seek precision and trust the power of the syllogism to synthesize truth. Nothing new, of course, for all that can be known is already buried in the premises. Plato leads the way, then Aristotle, as Fry says, worked out the organon of a deductive logic based on a theory of multiple causation and provided a technique for arranging words to make a conquering march across reality, subjects pursuing objects through all the obstacles of predicates as the Macedonian phalanxes of his people Alexander marched across Asia. Well, Paul and his cohorts make their way too, down from Golgotha by foot and by ship, a gaggle of converts encouraging those to whom the Spirit leads them, from Asia westward now, back to Greece, now setting foot in Macedonia, and there encountering not conquering armies, but women, ready to open their hearts and houses and give the new faith a place to grow. Humble people turned by simple words, words of power, to a whole new way of thinking, of being. Their lives filled with a new promise, lived with a new purpose. I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no, right, no, no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honors of the nations. The last words of Scripture, words of power. We can read them literally. We can go for a political analogy. Either way, we miss the whole power 
and import of these words. The scriptures end as they began with words of power, not abstractions, but metaphysical images anchored in concrete physical realities. Oracular statements, not to be argued, but to be accepted, declaring, declaiming the goodness and beauty and power of God. May that same spirit help us too. Liberating linguistic slaves who can only come to sacred texts in the thrall of a scientific language that can only desiccate and divide. Help us to hear those words as they were meant to be heard in here. Help us to be brought back together and to him. May his words move us still as once they did. Amen.